0: Amen. John chapter 7, please, beginning at verse 14. Uh, We pick up our text this morning as Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles on the Temple Mount. Now that's a little bit complicated, but I just want you to keep it in mind that Jesus is there during feast time when there are thousands of people in the temple courtyards. And he's come up with this very deliberate intent not that he would come up with the rest of the crowds at the beginning of the feast of tabernacles that he came up alone in his own timing in his own way to come but when he came to jerusalem he didn't hide out he wasn't in the witness protection program Even though there were people who wanted to arrest and even kill him, with incredible boldness, Jesus came to the Temple Mount and he began to teach publicly in this remarkable, remarkable section from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. But I just want you to have that picture in your mind. Jesus on the Temple Mount, publicly teaching multitudes. Ready now? Verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. So there's Jesus with perfect boldness, crying out in the temple courts, teaching publicly, not hiding a thing, knowing that the religious leaders want to not only arrest him, but even kill him. But again, with great boldness he teaches, and as he's teaching, the people are amazed. Look at that phrase in verse 15 with me. This is what they said. How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now that phrasing, how does this man know letters, that's not exactly a great translation. From that, you would, you would think that they're asking, how does he read and write, you know? But they're not asking whether or not Jesus is literate. No, the idea in the original is that they want to know how come he has such a mastery of the scriptures. How come he knows the writings so amazingly well? And this was remarkable about what Jesus when Jesus taught. When Jesus taught, he expounded the scriptures. He laid out the Word of God. He explained it in a way that nobody ever had, and might I say, nobody ever has since. Jesus proclaimed the Word of God quoting the scripture, interpreting the scripture, applying the scripture, and he didn't have to rely on the interpretations of other rabbis. You know, in that day, it was customary when a rabbi taught that he would say, well, rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says that. Jesus didn't do any of that. He taught with authority, and he taught with brilliance as he expounded the scripture. And as they heard this, they marveled. They said, where did he get this? Most notably, they understood that Jesus didn't go to the normal rabbinical schools of his day, that Jesus didn't have a formal education according to their system because they had a system of education. In those days, if you wanted to be a rabbi who taught publicly, this is how you had to do it. You had to attach yourself as an apprentice to another rabbi and be under that rabbi for anywhere for three, four, five, maybe even 10 years, and that's how you would learn. You would study under another rabbi. That's what Jesus did with his own disciples, except Jesus did it for a remarkably short time, only three years. They expected that it would be much longer. In any regard, they said, this guy didn't go through the normal educational channels. Where's his seminary degree? Where's his graduate work? Yet nevertheless, he knows the scriptures and he teaches them and he implies them. I don't know if you can tell I'm getting worked up in my voice already. I got to kind of back this down. But you know, um, this really hits me as a passage of scripture because for me it's kind of personal. I mean, I, I don't talk a lot about this because I don't want the focus to be me or I think it's you know not all that interesting to talk about myself but friends you know I stand before you and I teach you Sunday after Sunday and and I act like I know something of the word of God but I got to give full disclosure here I have no formal biblical education the only Bible education I have I went to three months of a Bible school Now it was very blessed matter of fact that's where I met my wife but I mean, it really isn't anything in terms of a formal education. Now I, I, I do have a bachelor's degree uh, from UCSB, history major. Go Gauchos! <laughs> but look, I I don't have now. I don't say that as a point of pride. It, it's not like I'm proud of not having any formal education. But I'm just saying that's what I am. Now. Even though I don't have a formal education with a seminary degree or such as that, I believe, and I I hope I don't sound proud when I say this. I'm just trying to be transparent with you. I believe that I'm a biblically educated man. See, I don't think that God puts a value on ignorance in the ministry. Woo, forget about education. Let's be more ignorant in the ministry. That's not what God says. I think it's very important for a man to be educated in the Scriptures and educated in theology and educated in things of God. This is just what I would say is that there's more than one way to get that education. Does God use Bible colleges and does God use seminaries and other forms of formal education? Absolutely he does and I thank God for them. But that, those aren't the only channels that God uses in raising up people who can serve in his name. And so when it came to Jesus' credentials, he didn't say, well, I studied under this rabbi or that rabbi. Jesus gave a different idea altogether. Look at how Jesus states his own credentials. In verse 16, he says this, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus didn't point to his credentials. He pointed to his doctrine. Do you want to know if I teach the truth? Don't look at whether or not I got a diploma on the wall. Look if if I teach true biblical doctrine. Compare with what I teach to the doctrine of God. See if it matches up. If you can say, well, no, this guy doesn't know his Bible. Look at this and this. Then you got something to talk about. But Jesus understood this, and I think we understand it today. Whether you have a diploma or whether you don't have a diploma, do you know the scriptures? Are, Are you a man or a woman of God's word? Is it evident in the way that you explain and interpret and divide the word of God? This is what's important. Jesus said, look at my doctrine. And then he also says, but his who sent me. My doctrine's from God and I am sent by God. So friends, we understand this. That education is great and can be wonderfully used of God. But the result has to be someone who knows God's truth according to the Bible and someone who is sent by God. Jesus wasn't man-taught. Jesus wasn't self-taught. He was God-taught. Jesus wasn't man-sent. He wasn't self-sent. He was God-sent. And that made all the difference. Now, Now pick it up here in verse 17. Jesus goes on. He says something very interesting. He says in verse 17, if anyone wants to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Jesus says, if you want to understand, if you want to judge doctrine, then do the will of God. Did you see that phrase in verse 17? If anyone will do his will or wills to do his will. Friends, Jesus brought up a principle here that I think is very important. It's a principle, and this is just a little bit of a side trip here, but just a little one, I hope. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand biblical truth, if you want to understand doctrine, there is an element of obedience involved. In other words, it's not just something to learn in a classroom. It's not just something that you can study hard enough or have the best teachers about. There are aspects to biblical truth and understanding that are spiritually imparted and can only be comprehended by an obedient life. And I'm not talking about perfect obedience or sinless obedience. Friends, that belongs to Jesus alone. But I'm just telling you this. If you struggle with understanding the Bible, maybe the best thing you can do is take that area of known sin in your life and yield it to the obedience of Jesus Christ. For some people, the most important breakthrough they need to have in their understanding of the Scriptures is to just get right with God in a particular point of disobedience. Because these things are spiritually imparted. It's not just a matter of having the right kind of education or the right kind of teaching. Anyway, going on into verse 18, Jesus says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent me is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus says, I'll give you another way to understand that I teach the truth. I don't seek my own glory. friends, isn't that another valid marking point? (laughs) Excuse me. Isn't that another valid marking point for whether or not a person is really a God-sent teacher? Whether or not they teach to their own glory or the glory of Jesus Christ. And friends, I think that should always be our endeavor in whatever way we try to serve God, that the glory goes to Jesus. That as much as possible, we try to make ourselves invisible and let Jesus get the glory and the visibility but I don't want you to miss something amazing that Jesus said in verse 18. Look at the three things he says. Number one, he says, I seek the glory of God. Number two, he says, I am true. And number three, this is the one that floors me. Look at what he says at the end of verse 18. He says that there is no unrighteousness is in him. Who's Jesus talking about? Himself. Do you think I could stand before you with a straight face and say, And there is no unrighteousness in me. I couldn't say that with my wife in the front row. It could be like a courtroom. She could stand up. I object. But look, any one of you could too. I mean, look, we we all know. But listen, isn't it amazing that Jesus could stand in front of his enemies? His enemies, not his friends. He could stand in front of his enemies, those who wanted to arrest him and silence him and kill him. He could stand in front of his enemies and say, there is no unrighteousness in me. I'd like to think that right then in his speech there on the temple mount that he paused and he said, are you guys going to say anything? You got something here? You got something to object with? Friends, isn't it remarkable that Jesus made the public claim and he could back it up that he was sinless. Now going on to verse 19, he says, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Verse 18, Jesus had just claimed in the previous voice that he was absolutely sinless. There's no unrighteousness in me, but now he draws the contrast. He goes, there's no unrighteousness in me, but which of you keeps the law? You men who want to arrest me and silence me and kill me, which of you are blameless from the law? Matter of fact, he says, you're breaking the law right now because you want to kill me. Murder is in your heart. Now, when Jesus mentioned that there were people who wanted to kill him, not everybody in the crowd knew that. And so to them, Jesus just sounded paranoid. Man, is this guy crazy? People want to kill him? We haven't heard that there's a plot to kill him. And so somebody shouted out, man, you're crazy. You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? But Jesus went back and he talked about the issue that gave the reason why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. It was when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he told him to pick up his bed and walk, and it was a Sabbath day. They said, it wasn't true, but they said that Jesus violated the Sabbath. So Jesus says, you want to talk about the Sabbath? Let's talk about the Sabbath. I'll talk to you about the Sabbath. He says... If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses not be broken, that's okay. You know, according to the book of Leviticus, circumcision had to be practiced on the eighth day after a baby boy was born. Well, what if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Do you say, oh, we're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, we can't circumcise the boy? No, they did it on the Sabbath, even though it's work, because they recognized that it was right to do this before God. And Jesus, and this is brilliant logic, you've got to admit, He says, if it's okay to hurt a person on the Sabbath, because whenever you want to talk about circumcision, you've got to admit, it hurts the boy. If it's okay to hurt a person on the Sabbath, you tell me that it's not okay to heal a man on the Sabbath? Isn't that wonderful logic? And then Jesus exposes their whole failing in verse 24, where he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. They decided that Jesus appeared to be a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, and they decided that they appeared to be righteous. Jesus says, you're both wrong. You're wrong when you judge me by appearances, and you're wrong when you judge yourself by appearances. We should judge according to truth and not according to appearances. Isn't that hard to do? I find it difficult for me sometimes You know, one of the things about being a pastor is that people always want you to to comment on other pastors, other ministries, other works. And and, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I find myself too quick to do that, as if I know all about another person's ministry. And listen, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But man, I I just, my heart was touched by this. I go, Lord, I want to judge with righteous judgment, not just according to appearances. I, I, I thought of the figure of justice, you know, that kind of classical figure of justice, the lady with the scales in her hand. What, what else is distinctive about that figure of justice? The scales in the hand and what's on her head? A blindfold. Why? Because she's not supposed to judge by appearances. And that's how it's supposed to be with real justice. And that's what Jesus told us. Justice does not judge according to appearances, but according to truth. He said Jesus told those, those religious leaders, that's what you should do. Now, this was an amazing discussion, teaching that Jesus had on the, sermon mount, on the temple mount, I should say. Don't you think so? Now, now, look at what goes on here, verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not He who they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know that this indeed truly is the Christ? Now, some of the people from Jerusalem were like, this is amazing. Uh, Other people in the crowd don't know that they're trying to kill him, but we know the religious leaders want to kill this guy. And yet, look at him. He's a wanted man. He's most wanted in Jerusalem. And what is he doing? Is he hiding away? No, he's publicly teaching. And the religious leaders can't shut him up. This made them marvel. If they can't shut him up, Maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he is the guy. Now look at the response to this in verse 27. They also said, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Okay, do you get what the people are saying? The people are saying, wow, maybe he's the Messiah, but then they say, no, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. And when the Messiah comes, nobody knows where he comes from. It's very interesting that in the Judaism of that time, some of the people, not all, but some of the people believed that when the Messiah came, he would come like a flash of lightning and nobody would know where he came from. They took this from verses like Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 that says that God's messenger will come to the temple suddenly. And the idea is without any pre-announcement. And so many people thought in that day that when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know anything about him until, boom, he comes to bring whatever salvation or judgment that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to come like a bolt of lightning, not with a pre-announcement. Now, you know what I find fascinating about that? Is that that is more relevant to the second coming of Jesus, isn't it? So it's not that there wasn't some scriptural reason to believe this, but it was wrong in Jesus' case because they also know that the birthplace of the Messiah was announced in the Old Testament as being the city of Bethlehem. We also know that it was known Jesus came from Bethlehem, his birthplace, he came from Nazareth where he was raised. They said we know where he's from. This can't fit the picture of the Messiah. But they were judging wrongly. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. By the way, would you please notice that? I just love it. He cried out. He's not like, oh, great, there's lots of guys trying to get me. Let's, let's keep it in tight. Let's get in with a huddle. I'll whisper these things here. Are you kidding? Jesus, is there in the temple, with perfect boldness, he's crying out. And what does he say? He cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And have I not come of myself? But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Friends, please notice those lines. In verse 28, first of all, he says, you both know me, and you know where I'm from? Most Bible commentators believe that when Jesus said that, he was being ironic or sarcastic. ho! Oh, so you think you know where I'm from? You think you know. You look at me and say, oh, he's from Bethlehem. You look at me and you say, oh, he's from Nazareth. Yeah, we know all about that guy. And then Jesus says, you don't know where I'm from at all. My origin is more mysterious than you imagine. Because he says, I'll tell you where I come from. Look at this in verse 29. I am from him and he sent me. He says those three things. Excuse me, I'll back up just a little bit in verse 29. But I know him. For I am from him, and he sent me. Friends, you know what? The crowds were confused. The crowds were confused. Uh, Do they want to kill him? Do they not really want to kill him? I don't really know. The crowds were confused. Uh, Is the Messiah going to come from a known place, or is he going to come like a flash of lightning? I don't really know. But let me tell you who wasn't confused. Jesus Christ was not confused. He said, listen, I know exactly where I came from. I know God the Father in a way you don't know him. I come from God the Father. I come from heaven. That's my real origin. And then thirdly, he says, he sent me. Jesus wasn't confused in the slightest. Friends, I I don't know when this awareness came to Jesus. I don't know if Jesus at four years of age would have said, I am from him, and he sent me. I don't know if he would have said that. Maybe he would have, maybe not. I can't tell you. But I do know that by the time Jesus came into his ministry, there was not the slightest bit of confusion or misunderstanding. He knew who he was, he knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. And he was so bold to say that I come from heaven. Friends, this is a staggering thing for a man to say, to say it clearly, to say it without confusion. He says this, I came from heaven. God sent me in a way unlike He has sent anybody else. You see, somebody could say, well, didn't God send Isaiah the prophet? Didn't God send Elijah the prophet? Yeah, God sent them, but He sent them from earth. He sent the Son of God from heaven. That is my heavenly origin. Friends, there's just something about that that strikes me, about the confidence of Jesus in who he was, in what he was doing, and where he was going. Not the slightest bit of doubt. And I think about us. I think about us, right here, right now. And there are people who genuinely struggle with that. They genuinely wonder, man, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? And look, I'm not talking about you don't know what's written on your birth certificate. You know what's written on your birth certificate. But there's a more, I don't know, almost philosophical question. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is my place in God's plan? You know, I was just a kid in the 70s, but I remember when people used to talk about finding themselves. I got to go find myself. Do you remember that? I don't know if people talk like that anymore, but they sure think like that. Let me give you the good news in Jesus Christ. If you want to find yourself in this world, if you really want to know where you came from and who you are and where you're going, you're not going to find it by staring at your own navel. I mean that metaphorically, not, not, not literally. You're not going to find it by looking within. You know where you're going to find it? You're going to find it by looking to Jesus Christ because he knew perfectly where he came from, who he was, and where he was going. And you're going to understand those things in your life as you look to Jesus. You thought that the secret was to say, okay, I'm going to push everything aside. I'm going to push my family aside, my friends aside, and Jesus aside, and I'm going to look within to find out who I am. Friends, there's nothing more depressing than that. Forget about looking within to figure out who you are. Why don't you look to Jesus Christ? Put your focus on Him. Make Him your interest. Make Him your focus. Make Him your wonder and the love of your life. And friends, you'll figure out who you are. You'll figure out why you're here. You'll figure out where you are going. That's to whom we need to look to Jesus Himself. And friends, when Jesus is crying out on the Temple Mount, I know God. I come from him. He sent me. When he's crying that out, that's going to raise a hubbub. People are going to oppose him. That's exactly what we find in verse 30. Look at verse 30 with me, please. He says this. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. (laughs) When Jesus is so obviously claiming to be God right there on the Temple Mount, The red alarm started going in the temple police department. And they sent out the officials. They sent out the rulers, the leaders. They said, get this man, arrest him, shut him up and arrest him. But when they came, look what happens. Verse 30, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The officers came, and I don't know how many of them were. I don't know how they were armed, but they came, and they said, we're going to arrest you, Jesus. They sent out the SWAT team. They sent out whoever they wanted to do. We're going to stop this man. They come up to Jesus, and as he continues to teach, they start. they begin to listen. Matter of fact, I like, later on in the chapter, we'll get to it next week, but later on in the chapter, when those officers go back empty-handed to the religious officials, and the religious officials, say, where's Jesus we told you to go arrest Jesus and he came back empty-handed, where is he? You know what they responded? They said, listen man, nobody ever spoke like this man. We wanted to arrest him, but then we started listening to him. And when we started listening to him, we knew that we could not do anything against this man. And why? Look at that phrase in verse 30. It was because his hour had not yet come. Now friends, later on, About six months from this time, Jesus is going to say something to his disciples. He's going to say, the hour has come. Oh, God intended for Jesus to be arrested. God intended for Jesus to be silenced in that sense. God intended for Jesus to be executed. But friends, at the right time and not a moment before, the hour would come, but it had not come yet. Don't you think there's something wonderful in the life and ministry of Jesus that nobody could lay a hand on him until his hour had come? Wouldn't you like to have that in your life? Wouldn't you like to know that your life is not at the mercy of, again, I'm speaking metaphorically, applying it to Jesus, your life isn't at the mercy of the religious officials or the officers sent to arrest you or even the crowd around you, but your life is in the hands of God the Father alone. Friends, let me tell you something. This is a word of hope for somebody here. Your life is in the hands of God the Father alone if you are in Jesus Christ. If you belong to him, if you are his son or his daughter, you are not left to the mercy of your boss, the mercy of your family, the mercy of the crowd. Jesus Christ reigns over your life and nothing can come to you from another person that has not first come through his wise and loving hands. Isn't that a beautiful freedom in life? Doesn't that take away fear? You look at that person and you think, man, my boss rules my life. He ruins my life. I hate my life because of my boss. Listen, friends, you've got to start looking up and realizing that Jesus Christ runs your life and saying, God, would you please take dominion in this situation and I yield it to you. Jesus lived with that understanding that nobody could touch him until his hour had come. And look at the glorious result, Verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? I mean, really, we believe on him and we we can't expect a greater Messiah than this. Think of all the blind that were healed, think of all the lame that could walk, think of the people raised from the dead. Man, nobody's going to do more than this guy. He must be the Messiah. And people started to believe on him. Isn't that wonderful? They marveled at the signs that Jesus did, and they started to put their faith in him. Now starting at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me and will not find me. Because where I go, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me? and where I am, you cannot come. The officers come. They come to lay a hand on Jesus. And Jesus says, stop. You're not doing anything. My hour has not yet come. And then he says, later it'll happen. Did you notice what he said there? It's very powerful. I shall be with you a little longer, he says in verse 33. I will go to him who sent me. You will arrest me. You will take me to execution. You will, at least in some sense, it's a very limited sense, but in some sense, you will silence my voice just temporarily. But not now. It's not in the Father's timing These things do not belong to you. They belong to my Father in heaven. And then he says in verse 36, he says, you will seek me and not find me. Friends, these people on the temple mount, many of them did not seek Jesus honestly. They sought Jesus to silence him. Where's Jesus? We want to find him. Oh, great, you're seeking after Jesus? Yeah, I want to shut him up. I'm seeking after Jesus, I want to arrest him. I'm seeking after Jesus, I want to kill him. Friends, can we agree, that's a dishonest seeking after Jesus. And Jesus is under no obligation to reveal himself to those people who seek him dishonestly. Now I say under no obligation, because there have been times and places where Jesus has revealed himself in those circumstances. There have been people who are totally hostile against Jesus, I'm going to expose him, I'm going to destroy him, and then they meet the Savior and then they turn their hearts. But friends, Jesus is under no obligation to reveal himself to someone who seeks him dishonestly. Now, I feel terrible at the end of verse 36 here because we have to stop. I mean, time escapes us. We have to stop right here in this amazing message that Jesus gives on the Temple Mount. And what he says next, man, it's the most amazing of all. It's even better than the stuff we talked about today. No, no, I mean that. I mean... Next week's text, it's even better than this. If you are supposed to miss a Sunday between this Sunday and next Sunday, this was a Sunday to miss. Next Sunday, that's, that's when the text gets really amazing. But look, here's the point. Let's conclude with this last idea. It's from verse 31. Let's conclude with this. I want to come back to this idea. The people of Jerusalem asked a very logical question in verse 31. They said this. When the Christ comes... Will he do more signs than these which this man has done? In other words, should we have expected more blind, lame, and deaf to be healed? Should we have expected more people to be raised from the dead? More storms to be stilled? Of course not. Now, I just want you to think about this. Think about it theoretically. Let's say, theoretically, that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not God the Son. Now, friends, you know me. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God the Son. But let's just say theoretically, for the sake of the argument, that he's not. All right, so we're waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for God the Son to come. Okay, great. What's he gonna look like when he comes? Now, are you gonna tell me that when the Messiah to come comes, and I mean that, you know, hypothetically, Are you going to tell me that he's going to do more miracles than Jesus did? Are you going to tell me that this coming Messiah is going to teach with more insight and authority than Jesus taught? Are you going to tell me that he's going to love more remarkably than Jesus did? Are you going to tell me that he's going to suffer with more courage than Jesus did? Are you going to tell me that he's going to atone for more sinners than Jesus, that he's going to rise from the dead with more triumph than Jesus, that he's going to ascend to heaven with greater glory than Jesus Are you gonna tell me that he's gonna present a greater gospel than Jesus presented to us or that he's gonna change more lives or free more people from their addictions? Are you gonna tell me that there's someone to come who's gonna comfort more grief-stricken people than Jesus does or heal more broken hearts or restore more marriages or triumph over more tyrants? Are you gonna tell me that there's someone to come that's gonna gain more followers than Jesus Christ ever did? It's impossible. It's impossible. We could not possibly expect a greater one than Jesus to ever come. Why? Because he is the Messiah. He is God the Son. And you know what he deserves from us then? He deserves your worship, your surrender, your submission, your loving trust. And so we can yield it to him. And say this simply to Jesus. Jesus, there never was, there never is, there never will be one greater than you. We surrender it all to you, Jesus. Father, that's our prayer right now. Lord, I pray that you'd right now by your spirit make it very practical. I I pray for that person, Lord, uh, who's been troubled, who's been stressed, who's been filled with fear or anxiety. Jesus, would you show them your greatness over all of that? Jesus, would you show them your triumph and how that's absolutely impossible that we could ever expect anybody with a greater standing, a greater credential, a greater place than Jesus to ever come. Jesus, would you please do that? Do it in our midst. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your presence with us. We love you. We praise you. Oh, great Messiah, we worship you together here this morning in Jesus' name, amen.